You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. We as an industry have a ways to go to remove as much friction as we can from the user experience, and then users will be will be using stronger authentication much more freely. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and digging a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later on the show, my conversation with Ann Johnson. She is a security executive at Microsoft, and she is also the host of the Afternoon Cyber Tea podcast. All right, Joe, uh, before we dig into our stories this week, we've got some follow-up here, a couple items. Why don't you... Uh, Start us off here. So Michael sent us this clip by Duval Guillaume. The clip is old, but it's from it's like from 2012, but it's a really good clip. Yeah. So we're going to put a link in the show notes. It's on YouTube, but I'll give you a description of it, mm. right? It's this this yurt, right, which is like a a, a Mongolian tent. Right, a fancy uh, tent. Right, yeah. nice big tent. Yeah. And uh they seek out these volunteers to Come in and get a psychic reading from this guy, Dave. Okay. Right? And Dave starts jumping around, and Dave's got long hair, and he's all wearing all white, and he looks the part of some kind of— Like a mystic. Like a mystic, yeah. exactly. <laughs> okay. And he starts telling people everything about their lives, right? Oh. Like things like, last month you spent 3,000 euro—or not, not 3,000, good God— die from that. 300 euros on alcohol. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> right? And the people are like, this is amazing. How do you know this? Yeah. But they, he keeps doing all these, like, psychic predictions. And uh, at, the end of, at the end of each interview, he drops a curtain in the yurt, and there behind it are a bunch of guys in ski masks working at computers just looking at these people's social media pages. <laughs> oh, right? right, right. And it's, it's, a, uh, it's a banking commercial about all the information that you put out on social media. Mm. Uh, and I had not seen this before. And Michael raises an excellent question. How have you guys never seen this before? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think I had seen it before, but it, it is a good one. It is. And, it's uh, great. Yeah, I guess it's a sort of a step beyond cold reading, which is what a lot of these uh, yeah, yeah, a lot know, of self-proclaimed psychics do. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk about, I think last week I discussed my, my retirement plan, and I said we'll have to talk about that someday. But yeah. my retirement plan is I'm going to open a psychic uh, shop, <laughs> and I'm just going to sit there and listen to people, yeah. and I'm going to tell them what's going on just by having an outside opinion. Okay. Right? But I'm going to uh-huh. tell them that I'm psychic. Oh, right? okay. Because that's going to get them to, uh, there's a certain group of people out there that will only believe you if you're psychic, Yeah, right? Like, I think my boyfriend's cheating on you, on me. Well, why do you think that? Well, he, he won't let me look at his phone. He's always missing when I try to go, okay. All right, the spirits are telling me your boyfriend is cheating on you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so you're going to use uh, your powers of deductive reasoning yes. and slap a psychic sticker on it yep. and profit. That's right. Okay. I'm not going to charge a lot. <laughs> well, fair enough. You know, I'm, yeah. I, and, and I'm not going to do anything harmful to somebody. No, you know, no, of I'm, course. I'm going to, you know, if somebody says, I need some psychic healing, I'm going to like, there's no such thing as psychic healing. Go yeah. see a doctor. <laughs> right. Okay. Good, good enough. Right. All right. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll do a remote from your uh, location when you do that. Right. Maybe you just like beachfront would be good, right? It would. Maybe be you nice. could set up your own yurt on the beach. Hey, Dave, <laughs> I think we're hitting on something here. That's right. 
That's right. Grow your hair long. My, yeah, grow my hair long. That'll look great. With long, my, long mystic beard. You sure, Dave? You have this glorious, luxurious head of hair. I do. Yeah, still the original color. <laughs> yeah, and mine has thinned and grayed. Oh, so okay. if I grow it long, I just don't think it's going to look good. Well, I'll yeah. have to go with the shaved head look. You never know. Oh, there you go. Okay, yeah. sure, sure. That's the other way to go. You yep. could go that way. Not everybody could pull that off, but on you, it'd probably work. Nah, my wife says it looked like <laughs> Uncle Fester when I do it. But ah, yeah. All right, I could see that as well. All right. Well, thanks uh, to Michael for sending that into us. Uh, as Joe said, we'll have a link to that clip in the show notes. We got another kind note from a listener. This is from a listener named Seth who says, uh, just a quick note about what you mentioned in your latest episode about legitimate use cases for macros in office documents. Uh-huh. In a previous job, I had been tasked with creating a series of spreadsheets for a chain of retail stores to report their nightly figures. The stores would make their entries on their own spreadsheets and then HQ would open the master spreadsheet the next morning. This master had data links to each store's version of their sheet. Mm -hmm. Because of the complexity of this elaborate web of spreadsheets, there were certain tasks that required exact guidelines to be followed. However, the skill set of the people interacting with the data was too low to expect this kind of precision. So the spreadsheets had multiple macros built in to handle, dumbed down, most of these tasks so that anyone could do them. This meant that each of these locations had to operate with macros enabled all the time. I see. He says, I'm not sure that this is a great example of why macros should be allowed, but it came to mind during your discussion. No, that's that's exactly the kind of information I'm looking for. Yeah. That's that's why I asked the the the, the question to the listeners. This is an uh, a great example of why you need it. Because let's you can put anything into a spreadsheet cell at all. Yeah. Right? Sure. So if you need data validation in order for a function to work, uh, I can see that being a use case for macros. Mm -hmm. Because if I don't put the right kind of data into a cell, I get just a bunch of refs, right? Little errors that show up elsewhere in the spreadsheet. Right, right. But if I don't know where those things are, or I don't see them, or I don't care, yeah. it'll it'll never happen. You're going to need to do... So data validation is a perfectly good use case for, for macros. Yeah. Should we still be using them? Probably not. I think now you might need a web application to do that and just yeah. pull it out of a database. No, but it's a good example. It's a good example. Good use case. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Seth. So thank you for sending that in. We appreciate it. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, let's jump into our stories here. I'm going to kick things off for us. Uh, I have something. This is from CPO Magazine, uh, and uh, it's written by Scott Ikeda. And it's titled, A Phishing Scam Nets $23.5 Million from the DOD, and a California man has been arrested for siphoning money from contractors. I see. So this is all about uh, a gentleman from Northridge, California, uh, one Sirkan Oyuntur, um, and he worked for a contractor that supplies jet fuel to the DOD uh, for operations in Southeast Asia. And he conspired with someone else who was a uh, person from New Jersey who owned a used car dealership. <laughs> Write your own joke. Right. <laughs> um, who created a, a shell company um, to try to divert the money from the DOD vendors. And they stole over $23.5 million before they got caught. Uh, this article says that they had some co-conspirators in Turkey and Germany um, and what they did was they it started out with a phishing scam, and they sent emails to vendors uh, that pretended to be from the GSA, from the government, and then they gave them a lookalike login page. Right. And so once they got 
the login credentials, then they would use their access to the accounts and they would have the payments rerouted to the shell company that they'd set up in New Jersey as part of this car dealership. Now, you might imagine that if you are a mild-mannered owner of a car dealership and all of a sudden millions of dollars start coming into your account, that may attract some attention yes. from the bank. Yes. <laughs> and indeed, it did. I would be I would be concerned <laughs> about that, that exact issue. Right. So uh, they tried to transfer the proceeds to a bank account uh, for the used car dealership. Uh, and they were they they made up some fake papers that uh, indicated that the auto dealership had been awarded a DOD contract, as used car dealerships often do. Right. Uh, but someone the, the the hero of this story is someone at the bank who said just sensed something was up, something was not right, and the person at the bank reached out to the uh, authorities, and and that really unraveled the whole thing. So. Um, the the person who headed up this scam has been charged, um, hasn't been sentenced yet, but could have up to 30 years in prison, uh, could be fined over $3 million. Um, another interesting thing here is uh, part of their scam, they used a lookalike URL uh, or <laughs> look enough alike <laughs> URL right. to get people to log in. Um, the, uh, the official website is dla.mil. So .mil is a military right. domain. And the one they created was dia-mil.com. Hmm. So close enough that on first glance, people would look at it and they'd go, oh, that's, it's the DIA. That's who I'm doing business with. There's mil in there. So it's the military, uh, you know, nothing overtly suspicious about a .com. So maybe this is just how they're doing it. Who knows? Right. Maybe a third-party contractor is running the website, blah, 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 right? It's it, all reasonable. Yeah, easy enough to overlook. And, right. And that was part of their scam as well. So uh, lots of things to take home from this, Joe. What are your thoughts here? My first thought, Dave, is that we are missing out on an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Of course, of course not. This is terrible. This is, uh, you know, I'm glad these guys got caught. Kudos to the guy at the bank for mm -hmm. uh, realizing something's not right here. Mm -hmm. um, why did these guys try to get away with like $23 million? I mean, was that, uh, how long, how long were they doing this? Does the article say that? It's, uh, it was over the course of a couple of years. Okay. Um, but, I, you know, it's a good point, but I think it's just greed. Yeah. You think about how many times could someone get away with a crime if they were satisfied at only committing one crime. Right. Right? Yep, they could just do it. Yeah, they could, if they just stole it, who knows, $100,000, right? right? Which is, I would say, venture to say, $100,000 is enough money that that could make a difference in most people's lives. Yes. Right? So if, if you had the discipline to only steal $100,000, maybe you could get away with it. Not saying it's the right thing to do, but maybe you could get away with it. Uh, but I think they steal $100,000 and they go, huh, well, that was easy. Right. <laughs> Let's steal another $100,000. Right. right. And then they get Let's away with it. and 200 more times mm -hmm. and we'll wind up with $20 million. Not only do I get a new car, but my wife gets a new car. And right. my kids get, you know, we'll pay off their college and their loans and they're in the house. And, and the my buddies in Turkey will also make out like bandits. Exactly. Those people are probably never going to get caught. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yep. Yeah. So a uh, couple lessons here, I guess. You know, obviously, this all started with a fish. Right. So uh, be aware of that. Uh, you know, check those domains. 
Uh, just, uh, I would think multi-factor authentication would have probably yep. would shut have stopped this a down. Lot of this I don't know if, they, if the DOD makes that available on mm. their logins, but the, if they don't, they should. And they, they make it available on a lot of, uh, they make it a requirement for a lot of logins, like system logins. You need a, uh, a common access card, CAC, oh. uh, to get into a lot of the networks. But okay. if you're talking about making payments, uh, that's a good question. Because yeah. if I'm transferring money out, it, it, you know, that a CAC won't stop somebody somebody who's compromised on the inside and doesn't know it, you know, they're, they're, they're an insider threat. They're giving money to somebody they shouldn't be giving it to. Right. But they're not, they're a victim. They're not a, a conspirator, right? Yeah. So a CAC won't stop that because they'll use, even if they log into the machine using a CAC, they're still going to conduct the malicious activity for the, for the attacker. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't help that way. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, that's my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, I have two stories. One is going to be very brief, uh, but uh, you know who Seth Green is? I do, yeah. Yeah, actor. Actor. Comedian. Yeah. Yep. Creator of one of my favorite shows, Robot Chicken. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a great mm. show. Yep. Uh, apparently, Seth Green lost about $300,000 in NFTs recently Ugh. by uh, connecting his wallet to a malicious site. Okay. Now— I'm not fully versed in what's happening here, right? <laughs> First of all, my initial reaction is Seth Green probably lost over $300,000 in NFTs by buying NFTs. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but go on. That's my, that's my own cynical uh, approach to NFTs, but go on. But I went to OpenSea <laughs> today and looked around and it says, it says create an NFT. If you want to create an NFT, you have to connect an Ethereum wallet to it. Okay. I don't understand any of this. You know what I'm going to do, Dave? I'm going to create some NFTs. Yeah. Why? Why don't you just give me that money instead? No, no, no I'm going to create NFTs, it on the, Dave. I'm not going to buy NFTs. It's still going to cost you something to do, though, doesn't Does it? Does it? I think, look, nothing in this world is free, Joe. If it, it'll cost you a little bit of your soul. <laughs> Just a little bit? <laughs> Just a little bit. And we all know you don't have that much to spare. Right. So. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how this goes. Just tread lightly. Yeah. If this does wind up, if, it, if I can create NFTs for free and sell them for money, I'm going to try to do that. Okay. But if I if I have to pay, like, you have, if I have to buy an Ethereum, one, yeah. Ether, one Ether to create NFTs, I'm not doing that. Okay. That's not going to happen. All right, so you're doing an experiment. I'm doing an experiment. We'll right. see how this goes. I'll, I'll report back at some later episode. Okay, well, I wish you well. But I have a plan. Okay. That's what they all say. That's what we all say. That's right. <laughs> what, what did Mike Tyson say? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Right. <laughs> that's, right. <laughs> that's so, one of my favorite Mike Tyson so Good quotes. luck. <laughs> well, well we, we're all sitting on the edge of our seats to hear how— Joe's NFT adventure goes. Right. So we'll, we're looking forward to you reporting back on that. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens here. All right. It may be two weeks. It may be three weeks, but I'll have something to report in a little bit. I'm going to hold it, you to it. And it may be, well, I found out I had to buy an Ether, so I'm not doing that. Okay. That might be the outcome. But you're not going to get away with not, if like if something terrible and shameful happens to you, you you're obligated to tell us about it. I, oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I'm I'm going to take take this one for the team, for the Hacking Humans team. Okay. Find out what's going on here and see how this works. All right. All right. So the, my actual story today comes from uh, Bleeping Computer. It is titled, Phishing Websites Now Use Chatbots to Steal Your Credentials. And this comes from Bill Tolos. Hmm. Okay. So we all know what phishing websites are, right? They're landing pages where you try to... Uh, 
where they where bad guys tried to steal your credentials for something. Yeah. Uh, but this operation is pretty sophisticated, and it was discovered by researchers at Trustwave who uh, shared it with Bleeping Computer before publication. So we're actually getting a sneak peek at this. <laughs> okay. It's pretty good. Uh, it starts with an email, and uh, take a guess at what kind of phishing lure is used. Oh, gosh. All right. Uh, I'll say it has something to do with my payroll. Ah, no. That's a very effective one, but it's actually yeah. a delivery, uh, a DHL delivery ah, impersonation. okay. Yep. Which is another very popular one. So it was really sure. just a shot in the dark there, but good guess. Uh, it starts with an email that says, your package cannot be delivered today mm. due to an exceptional situation beyond our control or because access to the delivery address is impossible. Hmm. Uh, there's a big red button in the middle of the email that says, please follow our instructions. And you click on that, and it opens up a PDF file that contains links to the phishing site, hmm. right? And the uh, the link, it looks, this, this PDF looks almost like another website. Hmm. But once you get on there, there's a, uh, there's a chatbot. And the chatbot always says the same thing. And it says, hey, thank you for, uh, thanks for confirming the, the tracking number. Here's a picture of the package, and they just show you a picture of the package. Uh, and it says, would you indicate whether we should deliver this package to a home or a business address? And if you respond home address, it says, uh, thanks. And then it, it walks you through the rest of the process, which involves entering your DHL login credentials, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And then during that process, it has a CAPTCHA in there that you're supposed to, uh, supposed to read hmm. because, or, you know, interpret, because that's, adding to legitimacy, then you're finally taken to a secure pay page that contains a uh, credit card payment information where you cough up your cardholder name, credit card number, expiration date, and CVV code from the back of the card. Wow. Uh, and then you click this pay now button and they send you a text message and ask you to verify the, the authenticity of, of the transaction by entering the code they texted you. Uh-oh. And... So now they have your cell phone number. They have your credit card details. They have your name. They probably have some kind of address for you. These guys have gotten a lot of information from right. you. And they've probably charged you something for giving that information to them. So just be aware of this campaign out there that's that's working like this. These, these chatbots uh, look real. They are not real. It's all a phishing attempt. And they're, they're you know, it's just a phishing email and then a credential harvesting uh, plus a credit card and identity theft ring. And this is a really powerful campaign that nets a lot of information for these bad guys. Can I just share something with you? Sure. I hate chatbots. Oh. I hate chatbots. I hate them too. Yeah. Every time I go to a business, and for some reason, a lot of uh, cybersecurity companies love chatbots. Yeah. Like, and so you log on, they send me some research or something, I log on, I go to read the research, and... Down in the bottom corner is this company's, their own version of Clippy. Right. Saying, hi, Clippy. welcome, <laughs> welcome to our site. Come on, look around. Is there anything I can help you with? I'm like, no, leave me alone. I just want to reach, I just want to read your research. Right. Well, while you're here, why don't you check out? No, just leave me alone. I just want to read the research. You sure you're doing okay? <laughs> like, shut up. I just want to read the research. I guess there's data that shows that chatbots lead to better interaction or help people find the things that they want or whatever. But let me tell you, for me personally, 
chatbots are a real turnoff. I get I the impression like that them. there's some marketing guy out there that thinks, or some group of marketing people out there that think that chatbots are helpful in directing the website user to where you want them to be. I guess. They're, you know, I always look at marketing people, and, and maybe I'm, I'm a little bit cynical here. It's not really caring what the customer experience is, but, but making sure that the customers are exposed to all the product information they can be exposed to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which, to be fair, is the marketing person's job, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. These chatbots, I find them intrusive. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't say it. I go, I go to a, uh, uh, a chatbot and I just start trying to type functions into it, like exit <laughs> parenthesis, close parenthesis. Right. <laughs> see, if, right. see if there's anything in there. Yeah. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we will have a link to this story in the show notes. Uh, Again, we would love to hear from you. If you have something that you would like for us to consider for the show, you can send it to us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Sadiq, who writes, I don't use Gmail or Google anymore, but I do check my old Gmail address in order to not miss anything. I've been getting messages similar to the following one. I didn't do any extensive research about it, but as a cybersecurity professional, this one beats me. I don't know what the trick is here. Perhaps you can include it on your podcast. I didn't check out the phone number here, but the previous phone numbers didn't reveal anything either. So, uh, Dave, why don't you read this one? There's a lot of bold in this one. And it's intermittently dispersed throughout the... uh, So every time there's bold, why don't you emphasize that word? All right. So it starts out and it says, Dear valuable user, we hope you are enjoying our Norton service. This is to remind you that your subscription is about to expire. Extend your subscription now and we can keep going. You will be charged $207.65 when your membership extended. Purchase details. Order date. Payment mode, ID number. If you have any questions about your subscription or would just like to contact us, uh, there's a phone number. We'd love to hear from you. Regards, Norton Billing Support. (laughs) So, uh, Sadiq, how this works is if you call this number, uh, you'll get somebody who, the the idea is that they're going to, you're, you're going to try to cancel the transaction. Right. 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 So the call to action here. Right. Is, holy crap, I'm about to be charged for something I didn't buy. Precisely. I better fix that. Yes. Yeah. So you call the number and they go, well, we may need to make sure that the uh, that the software is not installed on your computer. Let's open up a virtual terminal. Here, go install this software and let me on your computer. Mm. And mm. That's, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's the game. Right. And it's a bad game to play with these guys. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, again, uh, thank you to Sadiq for sending that in to us. We do appreciate you taking the time. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Ann Johnson. She is a security executive at Microsoft. Uh, she is also host of the Afternoon Cyber Tea Podcast, which is part of the CyberWire Network. It is indeed. Uh, always a pleasure when I get to chat with Ann. Uh, here's my conversation with Ann Johnson. You know, it's an interesting question when you think about social engineering, because I remember probably 2002, it might have been 2003, there was a Harvard Business Review article 
that talked about the September 11th attacks in the United States and talked about how they were largely social engineering attacks Hmm. by the actors that actually ended up boarding the plane that they had tested everything, that they socially engineered their way past airport security, past ticketing, and really using human psychology to actually launch that attack. And they made the parallel to cyber attacks. And we have been discussing social engineering. And why why the timing hits me is we had only been discussing social engineering for probably a few years prior to that. And just to see how the actual concept of social engineering is this concept that, you know, folks can use both physical attacks as well as cyber attacks. It resonated with me at that point in time. So we're at least 20 years plus into talking about social engineering. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I I remember thinking back to to my own early days, you know, back in the, I guess, the 80s, the 8-bit computer era, you know, with, with phone freaks. And so much of the things that they were up to was social engineering to make your way across what was the telephone, the global telephone network at the time, but calling up and pretending to be someone you weren't. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and if you just think back to to espionage, core espionage, right? Mm. I mean, core espionage is social engineering. So we just gave it this fancy new term. But at the end of the day, it's really the manipulation of human beings to do something they wouldn't normally do to further whatever nefarious cause you want to further. And as you look at things today, I mean, when where we stand, what's your what's your take on on the state of things when it comes to social engineering and the the scams we see? You know, it's interesting because I can tell you, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a personal anecdote. I think today alone, and it's not even quite noon on the West Coast, which is where I'm based, I have received six different phishing smishing attacks. So texts to me trying to lure me to click on some type of link that are actually not simply generic. There's something that feels a little more targeted. Um, And I'm talking to folks I know in the industry about the proliferation of smishing type attacks as well as social engineering attacks related to uh, account fraud, trying to get redirected monies. You know, you get an email from, you know, a small company, supposedly your CFO, and they want you to send money to an account or your CEO says send money to this account. We, I will tell you that from a state of the industry standpoint, I think we're doing a reasonable, and that's the word I'll use, job with core phishing attacks because phishing attacks have also become very sophisticated in that you can't count on typos and those type of things anymore and the company logos look legitimate. But I think our technology and our machine learning engines have have gotten pretty smart in detecting core phishing attacks. But, you know, much like anything else, once you stop the actors from using one vector, they're going to use another vector. And it's the same type of attacks, right? And these, you know, account takeover attacks and money redirect attacks. And like I said, this proliferation, and it's been only in the past 60, 90 days of smishing attacks have really been on the increase. You know, you as as an executive uh, at Microsoft, um, you know, Microsoft has the sort of dubious distinction of having a particular scam that that uses Microsoft's name, the Microsoft tech support scam, where people call up and pretend to be from Microsoft. And I suppose that's sort of the the two sides of the coin of being such a large presence in the industry that, you know, folks are actually summoning your, using your good name against you. 
Well, it is. And if you think of the IRS every year around this time, the, you know, the U.S. Internal Revenue Service, which, you know, um, is our tax service, right? Everyone files their taxes around this time of year. And the IRS also, you know, constantly is is parading the public of, you know, the IRS will never call you. The IRS is never going to ask you over the phone for your social security number. You see it from police agencies. You see it from, uh, you know, fire departments. We're never going to raise money doing this. Your bank, your banks will tell you we're never going to call you. It, all of these things are relatively easy targets for an unsophisticated, you know, general population that doesn't, you know, really uses te- uses technology, but just isn't super sophisticated with it. And the Microsoft, you know, attacks against um, we're the support agent, you owe us money. I get emails probably daily. Um, some are blocked, some aren't. But, you know, people want me to renew my subscription for something I never had a subscription for or trying, <laughs> yeah, or trying to steal credentials. Your ex, you know, your such and such account is locked. Well, I never had that account. So it's probably not locked. Right. But I'm a more sophisticated user, right? And I, I I supposedly can look for these things and not be caught by them. But I sometimes it doesn't matter because the attacks are so targeted, so sophisticated. Have you found yourself, you know, going down that path or you you know caught yourself at the last moment saying, oh, I, I almost fell for that one? You know, it's funny. I recently I was looking at something and I I to answer your question, almost, but I realized my bank would have never, it looked legit. I got an email that looked like legitimately came from my bank. It legitimate. And I said, huh. you know what? My bank just wouldn't do that. Right. But it took me a minute. I wasn't going to click the link. I was just, I paused. And the one thing people have to realize is that urgency, the bad actors use urgency. You must click this link now. I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick little story um, about my husband. Mm. He, he, and this was, this is probably 10 years ago. He called me in a panic and he said, and I always handle our taxes. And he said, mm. we've been audited. And if I don't send $500, you know, right away via credit card, I got a phone call. And if I don't send the $500 to pay off this audit, you know, they're going to, you know, take further action. And I'm like, okay, slow down. You know, this is a known scam. <laughs> but he was, because he didn't handle our taxes and he thought that I hadn't paid something. And he just, he was like, literally almost fell for it. Not, no fault of his own. The, the person on the phone sounded so legitimate to him that they were going to raise the fines or take further action or confiscate property. He's like, and I, we need to give him the credit card. But, you know, he paused long enough to call me and ask, right? And that's what they don't count on. You know, they got him live on the phone and they launched this whole, and he's like, look, we're going to have to call you back. And, you know, the person's trying to deter him from calling back, right? If someone is behaving like that, even if you're not technologically sophisticated, if someone's trying to pressure you in the moment to do something, trust your gut, trust your instincts, and pause. What I tell my family is if you ever get a call from someone coming to the bank or the credit card company, say, oh, you know, be very polite and respectful. Say, okay, I'll call you back and then call them back on the number that's either on the, you know, your known, a known number on the back of your credit card or Mm -hmm. the bank's legitimate number from their website and call back. I said, but don't ever take the inbound call and take action from an inbound call or an inbound email. You know, I, I think the point you bring up about pausing is so critical and also having someone to bounce these things off of, to have a have a buddy who you can say, so this thing is happening and, and I'm not sure what to make of this. So so many scams, I think, could be slowed down or stopped if we just took the time to do that. It's true. And we're getting to the point where, you know, we're, we're having digital natives, right, coming into the workforce. You know, the, the younger millennials, the older Gen Z, they're digital natives. So they're going to be less susceptible to these things. But that, that a generation like, you know, the boomers or this even the silent generation, right, that, you know, have exited the workforce, 
Um, you know, I'm a solid member of Gen X. We we started with technology, um, you know, in high school, right? You know, first computers. I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. We, solid, we started with computers in high school. So we're not digital natives, but we are a little more aware. But all that means is the actors are going to have to be more sophisticated, right? They're going to find different ways. They're not going away. They're not going out of business. They're going to find different ways to steal money from people. And they will continue to persist. And one of the things, yeah, and we probably don't have time to do in depth here, but, you know, crypto is a big enabler of fraud because once a transaction is done, it's theoretically untraceable and it's gone. And that, as you know, we've seen a huge increase in ransomware that's almost directly um, tied to crypto. We're going to, as more mm. and more people start, you know, developing crypto accounts and starting to put their funds in those types of things, we're going to see more and more attacks launched with NFTs and crypto and and just the theft of things that can be converted to money, right? Or converted to digital currency, at least. What do you suppose is on the horizon here? I mean, we have these efforts to go passwordless, you know, things like that. Do you do you suppose they're going to gain traction? Yeah, absolutely. So we launched, um, as you know, our passwordless initiatives for our consumer accounts last fall, and we have know that there is a need, but there's a tremendous amount of education that's still required. Getting people, it was funny because I'll, I'll tell you this, there's there's this industry impetus around FIDO2 that's wonderful and around authenticators. The challenge now is I, I was working with an account outside of Microsoft today and I realized that I have three different authenticators on my phone now. I don't think your yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't think your average user is going to want to manage three different authenticators, right? Um, no. <laughs> yeah. So I think that we still have a need for to drive simplification and standards in the industry and some type of methodology that people are comfortable and able. It's ease of use, right? Passwordless adoption is going to significantly increase when we have more ease of use for end users because you know those of us who are and you know this. I was at RSA for fourteen years, so I can appreciate all. Yeah. kinds of 2FA, multi-factor auth, but I understand it super well. Even your average cybersecurity user isn't exactly an expert in, you know, authentication methodology. And that's leading us to this place where we need to continue to be on a mission to be passwordless, but the adoption rates have to be driven by ease of use. And having three authenticators is a suboptimal experience. Yeah, I, I believe I have been in that boat where I've said to myself, which authenticator did I use for this account? And I've, you know, I've I'd find myself banging my head against the desk sometimes. I, I think even like, you know, I, I like yourself, I consider myself on the sophisticated side of, of the user spectrum. Uh, I would put you above me, certainly. <laughs> uh, but um, I think what's what's interesting is that even at that level, when the stuff doesn't work, it is so frustrating when it is a roadblock getting in your way of just wanting to do the things you want to do on your devices. And, you know, it, the trust is so easily given up when you run into one of those frustrating situations. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you something funny. My husband knows I pick on him every once in a while about security. He's a tech, he was a tech, he's retired now, but he was a tech guy, but not a security person. He was mm. really super frustrated with a particular app. And I'm not going to name the vendor that he had on his phone where he had to, <laughs> where he, I had insisted he enabled strong authentication to the app. So, you know, he, he enabled strong authentication to the app, but then he also had to re-authenticate the time of transaction and that friction for him. I said, yes, but all you have to do, and this was a time when we were still using our thumbs on our phone more than our faces. I said, yeah, but all you have to do is put your thumb on, you know, thumb on the home button one more time. This is like, <laughs> right, and, right. But even for him, this, you know, somebody who had been in tech his whole career, 
sure that was too much friction. He was really angry that I'd made him set it up like that. And he's like, I just can't believe you did this. And I said, well, you know, you want to authenticate again at the time of transaction for something, this app that could be a larger transaction. You know, again, we we as an industry have a ways to go to remove as much friction as we can from the user experience. And then users will be will be using stronger authentication much more freely. What role do you suppose, you know, the leading organizations, the Microsofts of the world have to play in this? Is this a, a situation where Microsoft can say, hey, we're doing away with passwords. So, you know, you, you got to get on the boat here. So we've done so much. So our first, you know, our first approach is obviously to work with all the third parties that support FIDO2. We have the the Microsoft, you know, authenticator that we have put out. We have Windows Hello for Business that you can use, you know, facial recognition as an example. Um, and we're working with all of the different FIDO2 vendors like YubiKeys if someone wants to carry a key, right? Um, we mm. want to make, we and we've built technology into our Azure Active Directory to support passwordless um, configuration so you can choose what type of passwordless methodology or what type of passwordless authenticator you want to use. That's the first step, right, is making it really pervasive and adopting as many industry standards as we can so that the people who are building applications can build to it. The second step is doing things like enabling it in our consumer accounts. Now you can choose to be passwordless on your consumer account and just use your authenticator or use whatever experience it is that you choose to use. Because again, we've built those integrations in Azure Active Directory. The third step, Dave, is what you said, saying now we're only passwordless. We're not there yet because Mm. we still need to remove some friction from the industry. But step one is making the experience better by having a lot of alternatives and adopting user standards. Step two is then adopting it ourselves within both our work and our consumer accounts. Step three will come to the point where we say, okay, your only option is passwordless. We're not quite there yet. Are you optimistic that we can get there, that this is going to be something in the future we'll look back on and, and you know, look at those days and say, how, you know, how did we ever stand for that? You know, it's, yeah, I want to be optimistic. Let me tell you, as someone who's started her career in strong authentication, and we only saw a significant improvement in even enterprise users using it during COVID because they were required to because they were working from home so much. But we still haven't, you know, we still all these years later haven't really come to the place where there's this massive acceleration. I believe that we will get there because it will be easier, especially from a consumer experience. You use strong authentication every day on your consumer device. You don't even know it if you have a smartphone, right? If we can just Mm. talk about it in those terms and make it consumable and make it accessible for people, then we will get there. But it's been a slow ramp so far. So I'm just remaining optimistic that at some point in time, we will finally cross the chasm and be there and have much, you know, greater than 60, 70% adoption. Joe, what do you think? Uh, Social engineering has been around forever. That's one of the early points is uh, Anne talks about how uh, it started becoming a something that we've looked into since the early 2000s. And from a cybersecurity industry standpoint, that's probably correct. Yeah. But this is nothing new. <laughs> and, and, you know, we've even had episodes where I talk about old scams that have been going on since the, you know, the last millennium, or last uh last two centuries ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's nothing new. And you brought up phone freaks. And mm-hmm. Kevin Mitnick, all of his hacking was essentially just social engineering. Right. You know, calling up and, and pretexting them. So much so now that it's actually illegal. Uh, it's a crime to pretext uh, critical infrastructure organizations. Hmm. And uh, Kevin is responsible for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 
It's good to be known for something. Claim yes. to fame. <laughs> yes. Fishing has gotten a lot better over the uh, over time. It's always going to get better. Yeah. Uh, so has our defensive stuff, which is uh, also always going to get better. It is an arms race. We, I, I hate using that term because it sounds so cliche, but that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's always, okay, they're doing this. I'm going to do this. They're yeah. doing, okay, they're going to do this. I'm going to do that. Uh, these bad guys will adapt and now they're attacking via SMS messages or by the term I hate smishing, which is, <laughs> doesn't really tell you what it is. Right? Right. It's just fake right. SMS messages. Uh, but the reason they're going to, to SMS is because uh, the defenses aren't as good, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I still get malicious SMS messages and, and that, I do have a good amount of defense on them. I actually ha go to my spam folder from time to time and look at them and see if there's any good catches of the day in there. <laughs> right, um, right. But uh, it's interesting that these guys are now adapting and going to SMS, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, targeted, sophisticated attacks are going to be remarkably effective. If somebody took the time to write a, a, an email tailored to you and, hey, Dave, this is so-and-so. I met you at this conference, and they have some open-source intelligence that says you went to this conference. Like, uh, like you're going to RSA, right? Yeah. If somebody contacts you over the summer and goes, hey, Dave, I hooked up with you at RSA. Here's something. That's all going to make sense to you. Yeah. Right? It's uh, So, yeah, the more tailored uh, a message is, yeah, the more effort it takes to, to, to write it. And you can't broadly disseminate that, that message, but it's much more effective. Right. Uh, right. Urgency is key. I love the story Anne tells about her husband. Mm. Uh, calling her in a panic, going, look, these guys are going to uh, charge us. And Anne telling him, calm down. That's not what's happening here. Yeah. Uh, what's amazing is that he was able to get off the phone with them in the first place. Uh, so he was able to do that. So good for him. Uh, these guys are going to put you in a pressure cooker and keep you there as long as they can. Mm -hmm. just, just so that you pay up. That's really what the end game is every single time. The pause is absolutely necessary. You know, even if you're on the phone with the actual IRS because, you, uh, if, because you've called them or something, you can always say, all right, let me go talk to my accountant or my, my wife and I'll get back to you. Right. And there may be deadlines and, and those deadlines may be real, but an IRS agent is never going to say, if you don't pay, we're seizing you. Right. you know, my son is actually an accountant, does a lot of tax work now. Yeah. One of the big things he says is that People are afraid the IRS is going to put them in jail. Mm. But the IRS doesn't want to put you in jail because then you can't pay your taxes. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. They, they want the money is what they want. Yeah. Uh, so any, any threat from somebody claiming to be from the IRS to put you in prison is not, not accurate. That's really not what the IRS wants. Right. They would rather you pay the money. Yeah. Anne makes an excellent point about the multi-factor authentication bit. And, and, and you and her had a nice discussion here. She has three different authenticators on her phone. I have two on my phone mm -hmm. and my YubiKeys. Mm -hmm. and, and these are all my multi-factor authentication things. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, and it hadn't even occurred to me that, yeah, this is not, a, this is not an optimal solution. But that's exactly right. This is, this is not good. We're getting – we need to unify this somehow. Right. I think the FIDO Alliance goes a long way to doing that. Uh, and I think that uh, with – with this uh, universal two-factor, or that that may actually become just universal authentication eventually. Yeah, uh, that's great because Dave, I can't wait for passwords to die. <laughs> Cannot wait for it. I'm with you. I'm with you. As much as uh, I feel, you know, for the folks who are in the password manager business, uh, right. 
Perhaps it is a, one of those industries, you know, like like buggy whips that is transitional right. and, yep. and we'll soon look back on fondly and say, oh, I remember when we used to do that. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Ann Johnson uh, for joining us. We appreciate her taking the time. And of course, uh, if you have not yet done so, you should check out her podcast. It's called Afternoon Cyber Tea. It is worth a listen. Uh, and I should mention also that Microsoft is a CyberWire partner. All right. Well, that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Fittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.